0: Thanks for tuning to Digital Voices Podcast, where we check digital transformation, challenges and opportunities across healthcare and life sciences. And now, your host, Ed Marks.
1: Well, you're in for a special treat today. We have as our podcast guest, Dr. Winkenwerter. And I know he doesn't even need an introduction, everyone knows about this amazing person and and servant for our country. And so I'm really excited to get into the detail and because we can cover a lot of different things from the military to payers because he was also the CEO of Highmark uh, and all things digital because he's been a board advisor, board member, chairman of the board of many amazing digital companies. So we're gonna go a lot of different places. So hold on to your hats. I'm thankful for military healthcare myself I was the beneficiary of military healthcare for probably about 20 some years. You know, My father was in the military and as a result, we had the great benefit of taking advantage of the military system for a long, long time. And then actually how I got into healthcare and the military myself was I was a janitor at a sure. medical facility, Peterson Air Force Base in Colorado. And I was 16 years old. And I knew at that moment that healthcare was my calling. I didn't know if it would be as a janitor or something else. I really didn't know, but I just knew that, wow, what a place to be. And also from a military perspective, just what great service these dedicated individuals were doing for our country and beyond. So really excited about our guest today. So uh, I know Dr. Winkenwerder from our conversations on all things digital he is the chairperson for uh, Sidious Tech, and I'm sure a uh, chairperson, chair, chairman of the board, actually. And I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about that, Bill, but I want to just welcome you uh, to our podcast.
0: Ed, thank you. It's great to be with you. It's great to talk with you and uh, to share stories and information. And it's just a pleasure uh, you, you've got tremendous experience and insight uh, in healthcare and in technology and healthcare. And so it should be an interesting discussion.
1: Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. So Bill, we have two standard questions before we start a riff on uh, all the topics. And the first one is your favorite music. So what kind of music do you like to listen to?
0: Well, I'm a little bit traditional in the sense that I love the music, For me, it's traditional, but uh, music from the 70s and 80s. And, you know, I I go through the bands, you can think of from that that era, but uh, you know, the Fleetwood Mac, the the Eagles, uh, even way back to the 60s and 70s, the Beatles. You know, I I love that kind of, um, a little bit, mm, there's a little sort of innocence to that kind of music in many ways. And, uh, but it's always pleasant with good melodies. And, you know, so, I'm not a musician, but I love to listen to great music. Occasionally, I'll listen to some classical music. I got the opportunity in a music course in college to, uh, you know, to listen and identify classical uh, musicians, and so I certainly have appreciation for that. But uh, that's about the extent of it for me as a musician. I wish maybe there'll be another life while I get to play an instrument or, you know, get a little bit more into music. Uh, I do yeah. like. It.
1: No, I'm I'm a big music person myself. I do get to live vicariously into the industry because my youngest son is a producer of uh, country music. Uh, In fact, one of his bands is in town uh, this day that we're recording the podcast. So really looking forward to hearing it. But yeah, 70s and 80s. What's interesting about that is the amount of those singers or bands that are still together today or playing independently. And it's amazing because that's 40 to 50 years. And what a rich career, right? You're doing something you love, being a musician, and to be able to do that for so many years, that, it really says something about those times. Yeah. Uh, because I, I often wonder you know, how many of the musicians today that we that are popular will be around 40, 50 years from now. Yeah. So. <laughs> point
0: well taken, point well taken. I left one out, but, I'll, I'll mention, because he was a North Carolinian and had a little bit of connection to where I trained in medicine, which is UNC Chapel Hill, and that's James Taylor. James Taylor, his father was actually the Dean of the School of Medicine at, at UNC, and uh, he was uh, a well-respected academic, you know, physician. So, uh, yeah. anyways.
1: I connected. I didn't know that yeah. about his dad, but yeah, I'm a big JT fan myself, probably one of my early influences, and uh, Fire and Rain, actually, is my one of my all-time favorites. <laughs> so, I know we spent a lot of time on the intro, but you know, it's always important, I think, for our audience, they always want to know who are these people? You know, yeah, of course they have done these great things from a profession, but you know, who are the real, who's the real Bill and who's the real Ed? So, um, the other standard question Bill that we ask is kind of like, what is your life mantra or message or passion? You know, what, however you want to define that.
0: Yeah. Well, it's, it's pretty, um, it's pretty basic. I'm sure like a lot of people, you know, you just want to make a difference. And that's that's always kind of what I wanted to do. I found my way into healthcare and into different parts of healthcare. But my role models as a young boy, young man growing up, uh, because my father and nobody in my immediate family had any connection to medicine or healthcare. I did have an uncle, a great uncle, who was actually a pretty famous physician in the early years of Johns Hopkins. But he and I never knew each other and never connected. But I, my role models as a kid growing up were, you know, an orthopedic surgeon, because I was often getting injuries and into the doctor <laughs> because of that, or uh, my family physician, my personal family physician, who was, uh, you know, just just a really solid person. And I liked the idea of caring for people, but it was, you know, beyond caring, it was like really understanding uh, the human body, the human mind, understanding people, and so and in order to do that, you had to understand first the biology, the physiology, the chemistry—you know, the basic stuff. Yeah. How, how do people work? You know, and uh, and so I found that really intriguing, and uh, so I did, you know, start college with the idea that I was going to be a physician, mm-hmm. and and then I, you know, after uh, it, get college and into medical school, sort of. Took a little bit different path, which we might talk about. But that was kind of how it started for me. And uh, I will say my, my vision of the world uh, was a little bit narrower then. I envisioned coming back to my hometown and practicing medicine, which I never did. I, mm-hmm. I went, went on and went to many different places. I'm actually back in, in that same hometown <laughs> now, with a different, you know, after 40 years, but because uh, it's a nice place but uh, with a whole different set of activities than I would have imagined. So
1: Right. Now you've had a very, and you continue to, a uh, very distinguished career. Can you share a couple highlights on your journey uh, in terms of some of the things that you've done for those who might not be familiar?
0: Sure. Well, I think early in my career, after going to medical school, residency in internal medicine, uh, I wanted to do more training and sort of epidemiology and, biostatistics and what we now call you know, population health. And that kind of, you know, I was thinking about academics, but that kind of gets you into the policy world. And so I had a stint um, working at what's now CMS, uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, it used to be the Healthcare Financing Administration. Spent a summer there and, you know, without really any plan or forethought prior to then, came there to work after I finished my fellowship and so forth. And uh, that was really exciting to me early on in my career. That was a high point and really a pivot point in many ways because, uh, as you can imagine, sort of at the apex of CMS, you meet everybody in healthcare, And that's where the sausage gets grounded you know, up with Congress and the whatever administration, and it's where policy happens. And what struck me at that time was that there were no phys- there were very few physicians involved mm. in any of that policy making, and I thought, oh my goodness, here we are restructuring the healthcare system. We're, we're the doctors, so that, right. that kind of got my interest up. But I'd say that was one, and then of course running the military health system for six years, and then uh, running Highmark, uh, two very large organizations. Um, so I I'd, I'd sort of hit those those three high points. And then, frankly, what I'm doing right now, I, I feel like, is a high point because uh, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to be involved in some really interesting things and, and things I think that long term are going to be transformative. So uh, that would be my answer to your question. Yeah.
1: No, it's like, wow, what a, you know, people would, if they had one fifth of, Bill, you're experiences, they would say, well, that's a great career and you've done so much and uh, it, it, it's really amazing. So you're our first digital voice from the perspective of uh, the military. And can you share some of that experience? I know you just gave a little bit of background how you got there, but what were some learnings and did it change you as a person as a result of that military experience?
0: Well, yes, it absolutely did. And first for context uh, and for the, the listeners, I, I started at, at the Department of Defense in 2001, uh, about 10 days after 9-11. And so I'd been named to this position, um, not yet in the job, but then suddenly was in the job and realizing I had this responsibility and we were essentially at war in the United States for those who could remember all this. So it felt like a huge responsibility and it was, but I I, I found uh, to go back uh, to the digital side and, and just sort of the innovations in healthcare, as you would know, having served yourself, is that the military and the military health system is a continuously evolving, continuously innovating, large organization with lots of resources. And so, when you put those together and the creative minds that are in military healthcare, you get some really innovative new things that are happening. So, we were one of the first adopters of electronic health records uh, yeah. of telemedicine the things that everybody expects today they were happening in the military health system a good 10 plus years or 15 years before the rest of the world and so uh, it just gives you an idea of you know where their forward thinking minds were so i found that very um you know energizing interesting and uh, and, and and pretty cool. So, the, I mean, those were some of the things, but there were other stuff, you know, having to do with, you know, sensors or, you know, advanced diagnostics or uh, clinical decision support, you know, lots of different stuff that uh, uh, was pretty cool. So,
1: yeah. Up. Yeah, Bill, that that's a really important point that you made about the military is actually much more innovative than people... Yeah give the military or government credit for. So I'm not sure why that is, why there's this uh perception, but you're right. The the things that you all were developing like you mentioned, you know, the early EHR, telemedicine are just now. Well, EHR has been around a little bit now, but telemedicine, right, just now becoming an expectation on the civilian side. And you know, I think maybe it's part of the you know, in the military, because you're in war, there's battles, it might force innovation a little quicker, you know, because I had combat medic buddies who had devices and they were doing surgery out in the field. Yes. And they were combat medics like myself who had 12 weeks of formal training. Uh But on the other end would be, you know, a physician, a surgeon from Walter Reed coaching them through how to how to take care of patients out in the field when they couldn't be reached otherwise. So, um so it's very progressive and on the leadership side as well, I always tell people that some of the best training I ever received was that when I was an officer going through some of the military training, it, it was very progressive. Yes. So we have yeah. a lot to be thankful for to our military for more than just the obvious. Yes,
0: absolutely.
1: So Bill, coming out of that experience, you then went on to Highmark. And so now you have this great payer experience. Well, obviously the military being a, a giant payer itself, but on the civilian side, uh, you became, you know, the CEO of Highmark. Um, Where do you think we're headed as payers today in terms of uh, the shift to increasingly providing care, right? Because I think a lot more care is being handled by payers versus uh, traditional providers.
0: Well, I see two or three really important trends uh, on the payer side of uh, you know our healthcare system. One one important trend is what I'll call the customization of care and communication all the way to the individual member or, or patient level. And so you have uh, individuals that are in need of information, timely information, immediate information, uh, accurate information to make decisions, everything from appointments to self-care to involvement with their own medical care. And the health plans want to be able to provide that kind of capability. So you see a lot of work going on now with consumer, um, the word that people use is portals, you know, a portal. It has right. a, a capability that one can go to. So that's one trend on the payer side. Another is what I'd call the integration of data and data flows between payers and providers. As ever, any uh, physician or nurse that works with the physician or office person knows, that, that interface between the payer and provider is, is often full of innumerable pain points because of the lack of easy flow of information and often the lack of understanding of one side versus the other. I've been on and worked on both sides, okay. and uh, so the good news is that you're seeing more information moving back and forth, and that you're going to see even more of that going forward. You have to be able to protect that information, keep it private, you've got to normalize it, you've got to. Uh, you know, uh, clean it and so on and so forth for the data to move back freely. But that's, you know, what's happening now with this uh, federal push for interoperability and standards. And and so the federal government in the same way that they uh, sort of pushed and with incentive dollars for adoption of EMR uh, systems is now providing the same kind of push For interoperability. So there were a couple of important rules that came out about 18 months ago, I believe, that I think are going to drive a lot of, you know, changes in healthcare. So those are two important trends on the payer side, but there, um, you know, there are many others. The the other I would mention probably irrelevant is just continued consolidation and growth. The big seem to be getting bigger. There was a bit of lag, if you will, or sort of a pause period for a few years when there wasn't as much consolidation. But I think going forward, some of the larger plans are going to continue to look for opportunities to, you know, to um, acquire or somehow affiliate with or partner with some of the smaller plans. If you're a small health plan today, you probably don't have the capital that you need to invest in technology to compete. And so uh, I think that's driving uh, some of the integration and the consolidation you're seeing between and among health plans.
1: Yeah, and we've seen the similar thing yeah. on the provider side, too, with M&A. And it's, it's just that the smaller hospitals or health systems can't f- compete for lack of capital to make sure that they have all the digital tools, as an example. Yeah, uh, yeah so I think you're right. The big are going to get bigger. Uh, yeah. Over the near term, there's still
0: competition, but uh, there needs to be. But that is a trend.
1: So what's exciting about having you as a guest, as I mentioned at the top, was just that so many different directions we can go, you know, from the from the military, from the payer side and sort of the entrepreneurial side. But uh, what all these have in common is sort of this digital thread. Uh, So you serve on numerous boards of various tech companies. As I mentioned, you're the chairman of the board of Sidious Tech. What are some of the other innovations you know we just talked about payer side, but what are some of the other innovations that are happening across the board so it doesn't have to be a specific category and and then uh, where do you think we're headed you know for in healthcare long term as a result?
0: Well one of the major trends I see is the growth of what I'll call digitization or uh, of uh, tech enabled services. That's outside of the hospital and outside of kind of the four walls, if you will, of physician-patient care. So think about um, you know home health, uh, rehab, uh, hospice, all of those post-acute in the community. Think about the home, uh, all of the, the places that that you know people with medical and uh, clinical conditions uh, are. That's where they are. They're not, most of the time, they're not at a a doctor office or in a hospital. So the care itself and the capability for care is being brought into all of those settings, and it's being brought to the ready hands of caregivers uh, in those different settings. And that's a very important trend, I think, that you're seeing. And uh, I'm involved with some companies that, you know, work in that space. Then then I think about other certain, um, I'll add another area, is in the area of, of, of mental health. Uh, and, the, you know, it's kind of one of the last areas to see electronic records, to see digitization. There's probably always been a little bit of an underlying concern about privacy, Uh but that's kind of falling to the side, and you're you're seeing a lot going on in tele- telemedicine, with mental health, and uh, right. and so that's that's another trend. And of course, when it gets to the to the uh, pharmaceutical side and the life sciences, there's just an explosion of data and information that relates to drug development, to genetics, uh, to um, on the device side, with interoperability of devices and being able to uh, monitor, you know, people's care remotely. Uh, certainly, uh, your former uh, institution, uh, Cleveland Clinic, uh, you know, I, I'm fully aware that they, they, as many cardiac patients as they uh, care for, uh, they do a lot of remote monitoring. Right. Those, yep. of those patients and those kind of capabilities, you know, didn't exist a few years ago, but so anyways, there's just so many areas that there's a real, uh, I, I've, when one other I'll add is, is the whole area of imaging and mm-hmm. imaging analytics and imaging AI, and, um, you know, movement of imaging. And um, so you could just almost go on and on any clinical process, or business process can probably be improved, enabled with better technology, better information, so faster, better, you know, cheaper, um, hopefully. And I think uh, probably in most cases, cheaper, even though there's an upfront cost to uh, put in the technology. I think you're, you're seeing that in, in so many areas.
1: Yeah, that's a great, I've been taking notes. That's a great, list in terms of where we're headed, you know, it just reminded me, Bill, that I think sometimes the frustrations for some of these smaller companies that are just starting out in healthcare is trying to gain a foothold in a hospital or payer side. And I know you work with many of these. And so I was just wondering, you know, how, so most of our audience are chief digital officers. So any recommendations to the audience on how they might work with sort of a small startup as opposed to always working with, you know, a giant bureaucratic company? Yeah,
0: well, that is a, that's a great question. and It's a real challenge. Um, and I've been on the receiving side of many of those, you know, meetings. Uh, somebody that's got something new or great, wants to show you, tell you, so forth, which is uh, great. My advice is, uh, first, you know, know your customer. Uh, know what their problems and pain points are. Uh, really understand and and so you you know it's not just your idea it's what their problem is so you're really working around not your idea but their problem and and think about it that way and have people advising you or working with you who really understand you know what I just said the clinical process or the business process that can be improved through better you know information technology I think if you do that and then if you can get, you know, it is hard to break in. There's no question. Yeah. About it. it is for any business. Um, but if you can break in and do a pilot and show that you've made a difference and that, you know, there's an outcome that you're willing to measure or, you know, uh, willing to prove that your solution works uh, works against, works for, uh, then then you should do that. You know so you want to know if you're a buyer and i've been a buyer uh you want to know that you know what you're buying is just not a promise you want to know that it works you want to know that the people that are behind the company are you know smart and ethical um that you're not wasting your money to to try out something new um and that you know that they have some staying power as well I mean. If, as you know, as a as a large organization, uh, you could you could start something with a small entity, and if they don't have the right financial backing or they don't have the staying power, they could go away, and boom, there you are. You don't have right. what you're looking for. So, so my advice to all the you know startups is, you know, think about those questions and think about you know how to get to your customer, get in front of your customer, but then be able to to sell with those
1: thoughts in mind. Yeah, that's really good wisdom there. Thanks, Bill. And I, I just think from the CDO side is to take some risks. So if you really want to push digital disruption, digital transformation in your organization, you've got to take risk. Yes. And sometimes it's with a startup. So if you always go back to the same thing you're comfortable with, not much is going to change.
0: That's right. Uh,
1: generally speaking. So so I always like to carve out part of my budget, part of my resource capabilities to work with a startup and see what you can do together. And, and I, you know, there's no time to go into some of those stories, but I think we all know the success stories. And even when it's not successful, there's learning that happens. That's really important. Can help you the next time through.
0: Absolutely. And I would completely echo your point. There should be every good organization, especially one of any size should have sort of an innovation budget where they're investing dollars in, you know, and new things, Uh, not all of them will work out, but, you know, you don't, you don't go in expecting that. You expect to get, you know, a a couple of things or a few things that, that will work out that will make a real nice difference.
1: So, Bill, again, because of your vast background and then, like we just mentioned, serving on multiple boards and having been a president, CEO, chairperson, what, what would you suggest to a C-suite? So let's say whether it's a provider or a payer C-suite, any words of wisdom that you might have, you know, given what's happening, going to happen in the future where we're headed. Like what advice? Cause I imagine they would love to have you come in and talk to them about, Hey, Bill, give us some advice. So what would that, what, what are one or two things that you might share?
0: Well, it, let's uh, maybe uh, talk about it. If it's a provider you know, versus a payer. I mean, it might be a little bit different advice right. so depending upon the, the, the organization. But, um, you know, you, you have to, as an executive, you've got to do your job, obviously, and, and execute and, and do it well. Know what your goals and objectives are and deliver uh, for, you, for, your, for your organization. But at the same time, you really do need to be constantly learning. And so it is listening to, podcasts like this it's it's you know constantly scanning uh you know the 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 internet and it's the easiest way to do it And, and learning from things that are posted on good websites where you can learn about new stuff and then you know some some percentage not too much but some needs to be to, to go to meetings and events where you meet people and you, you you have a chance to really understand things a little more deeply and reflect upon um, you know, where, whether this or that new innovation or new uh, uh, solution or technology or approach is something that might work in your setting. So you've, you, you've got to have your eye on doing your job and delivering, but at the same time, keep your eyes on On things where you can learn and then if you're in a position with with you know with a budget uh to invest in that then then you would be wise to to do that but that's 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 my advice and then the other thing i guess i'd say is you know go back to the provider organization um i I think it's you know there's a balance here but it's it is important to to really listen to the physicians and the clinicians, because they often have uh, some of the best insights as to how to improve things. After all, they're the ones that are caring for the patients. They know right. the issues and problems. And, and so um, they it's great, and I think best, when you can engage those clinicians in the process of discovery and the process of learning and the process of investment. And I'm I'm sure you did that when you were at the Cleveland Clinic because uh, you know that is a physician-led organization and yeah and and I think you see that in the great physician-led organizations like the Cleveland Clinic, like the Mayo Clinic, like Geisinger, uh, you know Hopkins, Harvard, others. Uh, there's a lot of clinical input into how things get decided.
1: Yeah, that's great. I. I think I created a top 10 list uh listening and uh that's that's really super insight. So as we sort of round the corner and and finish up, you know, Bill, we talked about a lot of things and again, you're given your background, we could go so many directions, but I wanted to leave maybe the last comment to you. So anything any final comments that you might have for our audience or anything you want to double down on that we already spoke about.
0: Yeah. Well, I just say that it's a really exciting time to be in healthcare, and I will say this without hesitation: that I believe right now is the period of greatest change in healthcare that I've seen in the last forty plus years, and it is driven by technology. And so, um, I hope uh, that the, the, the focus now is going to to lead to Better care, uh, more efficient care, more effective care. Obviously, the patient, the the member, if they're a health plan member, themselves have some responsibility. Uh, obviously, I'm a big believer in that. So uh, we can't cure all the ills of health, but the healthcare system. We all have individual right. responsibilities, and uh, that's especially true when it comes to you know the things we eat. Uh, diet, our habits, um, the social, you know, so-called social determinants, all those I put in that, in that daily And they have a huge impact on how healthy you are. So, so, we have to keep an eye and a focus on how to educate people, and especially young people, as, you know, before they've formed too many habits, too many bad habits, uh, so that they can lead healthy lives. But if, if we could focus more on that in the future, on the prevention, the public health, the healthy habits, the educated person, uh, and combine it with what the healthcare system can do and deliver, uh, I think we could, you know, arrive at a golden age of health and health care in the country. Uh, but it, the challenge is always in front of us. And that's what motivates me. I'm, I really enjoy it.
1: No, I think it's very well stated. I don't think there's anything I can add to that. Bill, thank you so much for being our guest. It was as uh, wonderful as I anticipated, given your background and just the person that you are. Thanks again for all your service to our country.
0: Thanks, Ed. Thanks so much.
1: Hi, this is John Lynn from the Healthcare IT Today podcast. If you like the latest rumors, insights, and happenings in healthcare IT, you'll enjoy hearing my colleague Colin Hung and myself debate and share the latest happenings from the world of healthcare IT. Find the latest episodes or dig into our archive at healthcareittoday.com or search for Healthcare IT Today on your favorite podcast application or YouTube. When it comes to healthcare technology, we love this stuff. And we can't wait to have you join in on the discussion of everything health IT.
0: Thank you for listening to Digital Voices Podcast with Ed Marks. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe on your preferred streaming service and leave a rating and review. And most importantly, thanks again for listening.